Welcome back to my retrospective on Untold Tales of Spider-Man. We're picking up where we left off last time with Untold Tales of Spider-Man issue 7, which is still set within the main story of Amazing Spider-Man issue 10. The cover is really cool. Somebody is examining pictures of Spider-Man with a magnifying glass, so Spidey is huge, whilst the people he fights all unrecognisable no marks are smaller and not as colourful. It's an eye-catching cover, though. On the Trail of the Amazing Spider-Man was written, as are all the issues today, by Kurt Busiek, and the art for this issue was by Pat Olief and Al Vey, with assistance from Pam Eklund. I'll say one thing for Busiek, he knows how to open an issue. The story starts with Spider-Man dropping off a bag of food with the Batwing creature that he met a few issues ago. After this, Spider-Man confronts Sally Avril and Jason Ionello, who are following him to try and learn his secret identity and claim the reward. The opening is quite sad. Spider-Man really wants to help this kid, but he's pleased for Batwing to visit Reed Richards' fall upon deaf ears. Boosiak then turns on a dime, twisting the tragic opening into a more light-hearted moment as Spider-Man confronts Sally and Jason. Sally is almost apologetic about what she's doing, but she makes it clear to Spider-Man she's still going to do it, as there's a lot of money at stake. For Sally, exposing Spider-Man's ID is simply an adventure, and nothing personal. As such, Spider-Man openly flirts with her, and she gets off on it. For Jason, however, this is the chance for him to prove he's as good as Flash Thompson. But he sticks to the shadows more, rarely speaking to Spider-Man. He's clearly far more suspicious of the wall crawler than Sally. Spidey, for his turn, webs Jason to the floor and has a chuckle, telling them that they are lucky he's not the criminal the bugle says he is. As Spider-Man swings off, Sally is smitten, much to Jason's chagrin. Jason's mood isn't any better the next morning, where well, his version of events is that Spider-Man attacked them and was prepared to kill them. Sally counteracts this by saying Spider-Man was perfectly nice, which riles Jason further. Jason's jealousy issues are becoming a real problem, and Busiek is playing up wonderfully the small moments that for some are easily forgotten, but which in others stew and later foster resentment. Jason is a lot like Harry will be in the later issues, someone who very much wants to be accepted by the in-crowd, but doesn't have Harry's money to buy favour. Peter walks by with a smirk on his face, but is quickly distracted by a flyer for a new optometrist opening locally. This, it would seem, would solve one of his newest problems. Aunt May has been nagging about getting his eyes looked at. Here, he can do that with a new doctor who doesn't know him. He even checks in under the name Peter Palmer, an in-gag for Spider-Man readers of long standing. During the test, Peter blacks out, but is assured by the Doctor, a man named Winslow, that this is perfectly normal. Peter, for a smart guy, you're pretty dumb sometimes. Winslow's real name is Winkler, and he is, of course, a bad guy, and in league with Electro. This caper doesn't really seem like Electro's bag to me. For one, Winslow slash Winkler says that they have had branches open all over the city for two weeks now. Electro doesn't seem like a particularly patient man to me, so why he's involved in a scheme like this is baffling. Secondly, is Winslow the optician at all these clinics simultaneously, or do they only open on certain days in certain locations? Anyway, Peter is on a date with Betty when he complains of a headache and nearly blacks out. 
he and Betty part ways, and instead of going home, he does a Spider-Man thing to get some photos. During a fight with some small-time bank robbers, Spider-Man blacks out again, takes the bags of money from the thieves, and wanders away. Dovetailing nicely with the B-plot, Sally and Jason are again following Spider-Man, and are intrigued, especially when they notice it's not just Spider-Man walking, all zombie-like, towards a derelict theatre. There are many people, all in a daze, all carrying money or valuables of some sort. Inside the theatre, Electro and Winkler are made up with their plan, as people dump cash and jewellery before them, and they're even more made up when they spot Spider-Man, as drugged up as the rest of them. Apparently, during his optician's exams, Winkler inserted a series of mental commands into all the patients, causing them to rob themselves. Luckily, there were no children, or they would have ended up with nothing but G.I. Joe figures. Electro moves in to remove Spider-Man's mask, but Sally has an attack of conscience. She was fine with her and Jason figuring out Spidey's secret, but she doesn't want criminals to know it. This shows that Sally hasn't really thought this through. When she sold the secret for the reward money, did she think criminals just don't bother reading newspapers? Anyway, Sally uses the flash of her camera to distract Electro, and it also has the happy side effect of awakening Spider-Man, who quickly assesses the situation and hurls Electro into the machine that Winkler was using to control the crowds. Machine, go boom! Electro isn't impressed and vows to fry Spider-Man where he stands. But Sally, who is a gymnast, remember, swings in from the rafters, kicks Electro about the head, and Spider-Man finishes him off. Spidey then takes a photo of Sally and Jason as the heroes of the hour and lets them take credit for the whole thing. This was a nice issue, but with a few minor problems story-wise. The optician's plan seems rather random, and given there's only two of them, not really workable. Electro's reason for being here, he's hired muscle, also doesn't really work. Winkler could have kept this scam running for ages if he'd just had a small optometrist business in a well-to-do area and only targeted certain people and only when he needed more cash. Never huge amounts, just enough to live a comfortable life and not attract attention. Throwing in with a costumed supervillain having large amounts of people carry piles of money to your door seemed rather dumb. Winkler is allowed to escape at the end as well, with Spider-Man never even seeing him. It's never made clear if Spider-Man puts two and two together to work out what all this was about. For all I know, all these New Yorkers are still wandering around with the suggestion in their heads that Winkler can activate at any time. Winkler does get away with this, and he'll next show up in Amazing Spider-Man issue 59 through 61, working as a brainwasher for the Kingpin. I don't know if going from being self-employed to working with the Kingpin is a good career trajectory. Still, there's a nice scene at the end where Peter and Flash share a moment over Jason milking his moment of glory, where Flash is almost nice to Peter, and Peter makes some cash, so it's a happy ending of sorts, with Buziak keeping his subplots bubbling along nicely. Issue 8's cover has Spider-Man attacked from all sides by the Enforcers, and a large shadowy figure called the Headsman. Olive's figure work is clean and all, but the lack of background makes it look like nothing's happening. Picking up after the events of Amazing Spider-Man issue 10, we see a Daily Globe newspaper headline about the Enforcers being caught and the big man being revealed to be a Daily Bugle employee. Holding the paper is Harry Osborn, and the title is Harry's Story. This is a remarkable splash page. Unlike other representations of newspapers in comics, the full article can almost be read, and it's fascinating how much the Globe milks the Bugle's association with organised crime, as they would. 
Barney Bushkin, editor of The Globe, manages to make a few pointed observations about the bugle's circulation dropping in the wake of this crime wave. Another nice touch is that Raphael Scarf, soon to be part of the Iron Fist strip, is the arresting officer. It was nice to see this attack on the bugle's moral integrity, and would have liked to have seen more of it. Jonah did some incredibly morally questionable things and always got away with them. In my head canon, the reason Robbie Robertson was hired was to keep Jonah in line. Harry tries to tell his father, Norman, about these developments, knowing that his father has an interest in the crime news, but Norman is an utter asshole to Harry, calling him a nincompoop, whiny and stupid. Harry notes that this is a recent development. Until recently, Norman was okay as a father, but now he's angry all the time. Harry can't understand what's changed. Norman dismisses Harry so he can get back on with his real work, which is apparently in a secret lab that bathes everything in an ominous green light. Ignoring the hilarity of Norman referring to this as being a doting father, this does reveal part of the problem with this kind of story. We're seeing flashbacks to moments we won't learn about until a few years down the line. When the Green Goblin arrives, he's nothing but yet another goofy-looking villain looking to take over the underworld. There's nothing remarkable about him other than wondering how he flies that glider without breaking his ankles. The subsequent developments with Norman, his being Peter's friend's father, his learning of Peter's secret and his ultimate murdering of Gwen Stacy have all given the Goblin a cachet he simply didn't have in the early days. Of course, none of this is Boussiek's problem. He's simply trying to add to Norman's motivations. Harry mentioning Gwen to Norman, therefore, is tinged with tragic foreshadowing. Unless, of course, Norman was already shagging Gwen at this point, and she was simply using Harry to get to her sugar daddy. Spider-Man, meanwhile, is caught up in a fight with the Enforcers. A fight which goes tits up with the arrival of an all-new adversary, the Headsman. The headsman distracts Spider-Man by slicing an elevator cable, so our hero has to go and save some people before they get the shaft. This allows the Enforcers to beat feet, arranging to meet up with the headsman later. Spider-Man is then forced to flee when the headsman slices his mask over. This scene gave me pause. For one, the art switches from Pam Eklund's thinner line to Al Milgram's thicker blacks, and it's a really noticeable artistic transition. It's especially noticeable as it will change back to Eklund for the character scenes and then revert back again to Milgram for the action scene at the end. Secondly, Spider-Man having his mask sliced open and fleeing before a crowd of people who all think he's turned coward despite having just saved them from the soap opera death of falling down an elevator shaft was done in Amazing Spider-Man issue 4. Having changed back to Peter Parker, he bursts out of a department store with film he's just developed. Not only does he careen right into Gwen and Harry, but also Flash, Sally and Jason. This is a startling level of coincidence, but it's a comic, so I'll let it go. Harry does mention recognising Flash as Midtown High star quarterback, even though we've never seen him so much as pick up a football in either this series or Amazing Spider-Man. Still, this is a nice touch, as one of the first things Harry will be seen saying to Flash when he eventually arrives in Amazing Spider-Man is this exact thing. Peter drops his photos off at the Bugle, another lovely scene where he has to barter with Jonah to even get paid, and then he swings home. Harry sees Spider-Man just as he also notices the Enforcers bursting into his father's factory. 
He uses a flur to summon Spidey, and we are treated to one of the most fun fights in a long time, as, free from having to assist the bystanders, Spidey quips and dances his way through the fight with four people who don't really offer that much of a threat. The headsman escapes on a glider of some kind, and we cut back to an enraged Norman Osborn, who from this day forth vows to never delegate any more of his criminal duties. An issue that's a game of two halves. It's undeniably fun, with some great scenes and moments, and it is nice to see Harry and Gwen, even if the latter is a rather fleeting appearance. There is just that little bit too much of a reliance on nodding to the past, or the future, for my liking, but you can get away with it, simply because Untold Tales is just so much fun. Issue 9 is the Monster Mash, according to the cover, as Spider-Man takes on the Lizard and Batwing. This story sees a slight creative change as Ron Friends and Brett Breeding provide the art chores as Pat O'Leaf takes a month off. Peter is picking Aunt May up from the train station following her recent trip to Florida, placing this before Amazing Spider-Man issue 11. Peter spots Doc Connors, who is in New York on the lecture circuit, and approaches him as Spider-Man to help out with his Batwing problem. Batwing eventually agrees to see Connors, but clumsily knocks the potential serum that can cure him out of Connors' hand, triggering a startling metamorphosis into the lizard. This is a fast-paced opening, introducing the characters quickly, and setting up the primary plot for the issue, as well as bringing a Busiek-specific plotline to the fore. Busiek is again prefiguring a future event. Peter will see Doc Connors in Penn Station again in Amazing Spider-Man 44, and oddly, when Spider-Man has his obligatory flashback to his previous meetings with the Lizard in that same issue, he'll completely forget this adventure. Friends handles the action very well, as he did in his run on Amazing in the 80s. His art is more of a homage to Ditko anyway and he seems a better fit for this book than O'Leaf, an excellent artist in his own right, even if he does insist on giving Peter a flat head. After the lizard escapes, which, let's be honest, was always on the cards, as this story has 16 more pages, we are introduced to some more high school shenanigans. Tiny has a broken arm, and all the kids want to know why. Peter knows why, but obviously can't say. When Flash pushes it, Tiny lifts Flash up with one arm, and tells Flash to drop it, before he'll... Drop Flash. Tiny's domestic issues show Peter that, despite his many problems, it could be much worse. Peter also loses patience with Flash, and it's only Tiny's distraction that causes Peter to forget about putting Flash through a window. Busiek also pays a little lip service to his other subplot, Sally and Jason. Sally seems to have a bee in her bonnet about Spider-Man's fame, and how she could go about achieving the same. Over at the Bugle, other noted flat-top J. Jonah Jameson refuses to give Peter an advance, so Peter promises pictures of the lizard. Jonah is understandably sceptical, given that the last time they met the lizard, Peter proved that he was an urban myth who didn't exist, but now he's trying to convince Jonah that he's real. Overall, these subplots are the best part of an issue that concludes with a rehash of the Spider-Man-Lizard battle from Amazing Spider-Man issue 6, only now taking place in the New York City sewer system rather than the Florida Everglades. It's a rather predictable fight, as is the conclusion, the only surprising element coming from Batwing, who leaves for Florida with Kirk Connors. The implication here seems to be that Connors will cure Batwing and then take him in as a son, being as his father is dead and his mother thinks he's possessed by a demon, but he's never seen in any of the regular Spider-Man books, so I presume that Batwing's story will be all wrapped up in Untold Tales issue 24, his next and final appearance.
The end of issue 9 introduces a new villain, Commander, a sexy French lady, Hulala, who takes centre stage on the cover to issue 10. She stands on a flying toilet. At least, that's what it looks like, but being French, it may be a bidet. And she seems to have Spider-Man beaten as he's on the floor. This is another issue that takes place in between panels, occurring around pages 3 and 4 of Amazing Spider-Man issue 12. Commander dominates the cover for issue 10. She cuts an impressive figure in a green bodysuit, purple and green cape and flowing blonde hair. But let's not kid ourselves. Her most impressive attributes are her magnificent boobs. She's still standing on a floating toilet, arm outstretched as Spider-Man crawls away from her. The toilet is also purple. It's nice when villains give a thought to their overall look. This is fine as a piece of art and a striking cover, but there's no way Commander looks like a 60s character. Busiek continues his winning streak with the openings. Spider-Man spots a Park Avenue apartment being robbed, presumably by this new European scourge of high society he's heard about. He swings in to save the day, but is distracted by the voluptuous figure before him. The news article Spidey read didn't mention that this new thief was a woman, which is a curious omission when you think about it. It's possible that no one has seen her, but Commander doesn't exactly dress to blend in. Commander makes Spider-Man's spider sense and other body parts tingle when she removes her cape to distract our hero. Commander's heaving bosoms have the desired effect, and Spidey turns into a gibbering wreck. To make matters worse, Commander is French, and as we all know, French women, like Australian women, all have hot accents. In addition to fighting his hormones, Spidey must fight off bric-a-brac being hurled at him, and discovers he can't land a punch on Commander, as she has some kind of force field. Even with his blood running to one particular organ, Spidey still has enough brains to figure out that Commander is controlling all of this, with some tiara that she's wearing and he quickly webs it, pulls it off her head, and puts her down. It's a funny opening. When I was 15, if I was in the vicinity of an attractive young lady, walking became an issue, but Spider-Man manages to keep it in his tights, despite being all hot and bothered. There's a lot of humour to be mined from Spidey underestimating Commander, including a laugh-out-loud panel where Spider-Man is so distracted, he gets hit in the face by some flying debris. Things take a dramatic turn when Commander falls after being hit, and she bangs her head on a table. Spider-Man races over to her, all concerned, and he wonders why. After all, he wouldn't care less if it was Doc Ock who banged his head. He reaches over to help, but the answer for why he's concerned is suddenly presented, as he becomes intoxicated by Commander's soft skin, smell, and, again, let's be honest, boobs. She takes full advantage of this, and using a charge in her glove, stuns Spider-Man and escapes. Commander has an interesting femme fatale vibe to her not seen in Spider-Man stories until he meet Princess Python, and even though Commander's figure would be more of a distraction. She has a bit of a black cat vibe to her as well, which may be a subtle nod to Peter's attraction to danger. She also owes an awful lot to the Enchantress. Still, a foreign foe is always interesting, and having her be so feminine is a nice contrast to Spidey's innocence and youth. Cat burglars are equally interesting characters. Rarely are such characters portrayed as evil or murderous. They simply want to steal money and live an easy life. The next morning, the Expositional News Network, copyright Michael Bailey, reveals that the Crimson Heart, the world's largest ruby, will be on display at the Hotel Imperial for one more night. Peter actually mocks this, wondering why they would announce such a thing when a notorious cat burglar is in town. He wanders over to the Daily Bugle and tries to sell his picture to Jonah, but he has no photos with a clear shot of Commander's face. 
He plays up the mystery angle to get Jonah to bite, perhaps arguing, probably correctly, that no one's going to be looking at her face. To his surprise, as he's haggling, Sally Avril is in the bugle bullpen, asking who takes all the photos of Spider-Man. This is tying into something a lot of readers wondered about over the years. When did Peter's friends discover what he did? In the early issues of Amazing, Peter specifically asked for no credit, but later on his name was plastered all over the paper, and people actually started to recognise him as that kid who took the Spider-Man photos. Much later on, in the Michelini McFarlane run, he'll have a book of them published. Sally being able to wander into the bugle is a bit suspect, but Peter suddenly goes up in her estimation when she spots him, and the red mist descends on Betty Brandt when she sees Sally hitting on Peter. Peter wonders what crawled up Betty's nose, but he has to leave for school, where he tells Sally he'd rather this were kept a secret if possible. It's at this point that we learn that Betty Brandt is still getting over the death of Bennett, her brother, who died in Amazing Spider-Man issue 12, just establishing where this issue is in the chronology. It is revealed that the hotel with the Crimson Heart is being displayed is owned by Liz Allen's father, which would seem like a massive coincidence, but actually has precedent. Liz's dad's hotel will be the location of the first, and only, meeting of the Spider-Man fan club in a future issue of Amazing Spider-Man. The gang all wheedle an exclusive tour out of their friendship with Liz, including Peter, despite the protestations of Flash and proto-Harry Jason. Peter takes the opportunity to reconnoitre the area, and then he bides his time and waits. His patience is rewarded later that night, when Commander arrives to steal the Crimson Heart. Rather than engage in a confrontation, she strips off even more of her clothes to lure in the gullible and youthful Spider-Man. But Spidey is prepared and whips her headband off once again, causing all her equipment to falter. What he's not prepared for is Commander screaming for the guards. It is revealed that, in reality, she is the Lady Catherine, a guest at the hotel. She tells the guards that she was looking over her gems when she saw a lot of unconscious guards lying on the floor. She took a small step to where the conclusions lay and reasonably deduced that Spider-Man was here to do some crime. Spidey is suddenly on the wrong end of some lead whilst the Lady Catherine is escorted away. Spider-Man, pissed off, has no other recourse but to flee. This was another great issue. Few of the early Spider-Man stories dealt with sexuality at all, so to see Peter all agog over the shapely commander is interesting and new. Busiek also keeps his subplots ticking along with Tiny missing due to being sick, and Sally's sudden interest in Peter now she knows what he does. Sally has something planned, but that's all for next issue. This issue is really fun and entertaining, and ends with Spider-Man musing about how interesting it will be to meet Commander again someday. He'll muse this for a while, as, as of this recording, Commander has never been seen again. Issue 11 sees the return of Electro. Busiek must have liked Electro, that's fine with me, because I like Electro as well. Electro and the eel hold up Spider-Man's burning mask on the cover, each of their hands crackling with electric energy. Ripped mask covers, be it Batman, Daredevil or Spidey, are always effective, and this is no exception. Shock follows shock is the only cover copy, and is also the title of the story. We open at the New York Correctional Facility where Electro, aka Max Dillon, is being teased mercilessly by his cellmate for being taken out by a bunch of teenagers back in Untold Tales issue 7. The wall shatters and outside in a personalised helicopter, Leopold Strike, aka The Eel, breaks Electro free and suggests a team-up. As two electrically powered heroes they should be 
unbeatable. <laughs> Evil laughs, Smog. As usual, this is an excellent cold open. Electro's pissed off that people keep mentioning that he was beat by teenagers, and as such, kicks his cellmate off the ladder to the chopper, rather than have him escape as well. If I were Electro, I wouldn't worry much about the teenage thing being brought up too much in the future. In Forest Hills, Peter is sewing up his Spider-Man costume when a new masked hero interrupts. Named Bluebird, she's a new figure on the superhero scene, and she wants Peter to take her pictures like he does with Spider-Man. This all suddenly makes sense to Peter when Bluebird reveals herself to be Sally Avril, who doesn't seem to understand the concept of a secret identity. She's been craving fame all her life, and because this is the Marvel Universe rather than the real world, instead of going on some tedious celebrity show, she's decided to become a superhero. She asks Jason to whip up some gadgets, and she's away, because in comics, that's all it takes. Peter refuses, but Sally threatens to blackmail him by telling the school he takes Spider-Man's pictures and storms off in a teenage strop. Peter combats the blackmail the only way he knows how, at a show-and-tell the next day at school, where he talks about how his interest in photography led to this part-time job. This is great stuff. Boussiet comfortably slides in a way for people to find out Peter was Spider-Man's main photographer, which was just forgotten by Lee and Ditko, but he does it in such a way to reveal Peter's intelligence. He completely kicks the legs from under Sally Avril with this move, and he does it in such a calm and reasonable way. It's genius. Olive's art is especially great here. Peter, Sally and the rest of the class all have a fresh-faced innocence while still being a little bit gawky that typifies being a teen, and that's not easy to pull off. A lot of artists forget that there's a stage of growing up between drawing children and adults, but Olive has mastered it. There's a lot of John Byrne in this as well, but that's not a bad thing. On this evidence, Olive should have become a bigger artist, but comics readers weren't big on recognising quality in 1996. Flash Thompson does recognise quality, at least the quality of Peter's photos, and he suddenly becomes Peter's best friend, following him everywhere, even to the soda shop after school. Peter becomes more and more annoyed, especially as he can't slip away to become Spider-Man after hearing that the Eel and Electro have attacked a Con Edison utility company. Flash insists on driving Peter there and expresses frustration when Spider-Man doesn't show up, which is nowhere near the frustration Peter is exhibiting. With Electro and the Eel promising to cripple the city's electrical supplies if they aren't paid $10 million, Peter needs to ditch Flash fast. The closest he gets to changing to Spider-Man is planting a spider tracer on the Eel's helicopter. Flash, acting like the overly keen girlfriend of internet fame, even takes Peter to the Bugle to sell the photos he took of Electro and the Eel. This is a neat dilemma Busiek has put Peter in. On the one hand, being in with Flash Thompson would make his life a lot easier, but it's also screwing up his Spider-Man time. The bugle isn't any better. Jonah admonishes Peter for the photos, having none of the crazy angles or great close-ups that he normally produces, and Betty cold-shoulders him for reasons that aren't really explained. Peter doesn't even seem that bothered about Betty, as when he arrives home, he ignores Betty's phone calls to go looking for Electro and the Eel. What follows is a highly comedic fight scene as Spider-Man must deal with the eel and Electro, which he does largely by outquipping and irritating them. His efforts are further hindered by Bluebird, who arrives announcing herself to be Spider-Man's partner and then proceeds to get in the way, trying an ether bomb on Electro and failing to understand how the eel's slick suit works. Still, Spider-Man manages to outthink his enemies by using the device he created to shut down the Vulture's power pack to reverse Electro and the Eel's polarity and sticking them together, because comics. 
Bluebird even cocks this up, kicking them both into the water, which short-circuits Spider-Man's trick and lets them get away. All that's left is the wrap-up. Peter tells Flash to get off his back, as Spider-Man probably doesn't even like him, and everyone fawns over Bluebird, who Peter is worried may make his life even more complicated. Overall, this is a great issue from top to bottom. The eel and Electro teaming up is as comical as it did obvious, and it works well, with Boussiet never forgetting that these two are still formidable foes, even if they aren't quite top tier. Another thing I liked about this story was that both men got along. There was no forced drama of them hating each other and waiting to stab each other in the back. This scheme was going well for them until Spider-Man showed up. Speaking of Spider-Man, his antics this issue are all in support of the drama surrounding Peter Parker, as all good Spider-Man stories are. The problems are Peter's problems that also make life awkward for Spider-Man, as Spider-Man's escape from reality keeps being invaded. Peter isn't a separate character from Spider-Man. Spider-Man is who Peter would be with a little bit more confidence, but Spider-Man is also Peter's escape from his problems, and when Peter and Spider-Man's life clash, that's where the drama comes in. Issue 12 is the one we've all been waiting for, the much hinted at but totally forgotten about backstory of Betty Brandt. The cover is a montage piece of Betty crying surrounded by images of Spider-Man, the Enforcers, Doc Ock and moments from other issues, like her brother being shot and her blaming Spider-Man for it. Ostensibly, this issue exists to help explain why a 19-year-old Betty Brandt would be attracted to an educated, intelligent and mature 16-year-old like Peter, because a three-year age difference is apparently unforgivable. Or is it simply that this is an older woman, younger man, as opposed to older man, younger woman? The Secrets of Betty Brandt is a character study, much like Busiek's Astro City. He fleshes out Betty's character by adding depth to what we already know from Amazing Spider-Man 10 and 11. Bennett Brandt was studying law when Betty's boyfriend, Gordon, who was a bit of a thrill seeker, got Bennett into gambling and subsequently into Hawk with gangster Blackie Gaxton. Gordon turns his back on Bennett and Betty, stating that as far as Gaxton is concerned, the debt is all Bennett's, and he ditches them both and walks away. Bennett graduates, but Gaxton presses for the money, and his thugs push Bennett and Betty's mother, who works as Jonah's secretary, into a glass coffee table. The accident puts Mrs. Brandt into a coma with brain damage, and Bennett goes to work for Gaxton. Busiek seems to revel here in really pushing the old tall tales concept. This is what this series should be doing more of. Betty obviously had some backstory in the Lee Ditko issues, but she was never really fleshed out. Granted, it was enough that Bennett had fallen in with some bad people for those earlier stories to work, but here Busiek is specifically tackling something the fans have been asking about how Betty came to work at the Bugle and her relationship with Peter. I'll be honest, I don't really have an issue with Betty being attracted to Peter. He's clearly far older than his years, and I know many people with spouses older themselves, from only a few months to 14 years indifference. The Bugle side of the story is far more interesting, although why Betty didn't go to the police after the attack on her mother is not explained. Also not explained is where the father is. Stuck for money, Betty drops out of high school and Jonah, aware of what happened to her mother, takes Betty on with a generous salary. This is a nice side to Jonah's personality and explains why Betty is loyal to Jonah. He does treat the Bugle as family and this is him helping out without having to admit why he's doing it. This all plays out in flashbacks. Thoughts Betty has as she witnesses Spider-Man fighting Ant-Man villain the Scarlet Beetle and her worries about Peter risking his life for photos. 
She's concerned that Peter, underneath the pleasant exterior, is every bit the risk-taker that Gordon and Bennett were. Subplot-wise, Bluebird and Jason, who is taking Bluebird's photos for a slice of that Peter Parker pie, interfere as Spider-Man fights the Beetle, but she does prove her worth when she deduces the problem and provides the solution. This is a nice subplot, as not only does it carry over from the previous issues, but it feeds into the main plot, where we see what Betty doesn't. That Peter, as Spider-Man, is as cautious as he can be, whereas Bluebird is a real risk junkie. There's also a random encounter with the Vulture, which has no payoff, but is a nice little slice-of-life moment. The issue closes with Betty coming very close to telling Peter the whole story, but she restrains herself at the last moment, unaware that they are both being observed by Gordon. This, of course, all stems from the issues of Amazing Spider-Man where Bennett was killed, and Busiek does an excellent job of adding meat to the bones of that story. This is really the first time Untold Tales has fulfilled its mandate for me, providing a satisfactory tying up of loose ends without tromping over established continuity. I don't know if this was ever referenced again, as it seems to put an end to the Betty is much older than Peter debate, establishing that she is a high school dropout, meaning she's probably no older than 17 to Peter's 15. But there is a coterie of fans who will ignore established facts to continue espousing their own faulty narrative, and to be fair to them, Untold Tales is largely forgotten nowadays. The final issue we'll be covering today is Untold Tales issue 13, entitled Without Warning. It features a moody and frankly gorgeous cover of Spider-Man, his head in his hands, weeping before a grave. The colours here are stunning. There's a lovely purple sky with a low-hanging moon, and the cemetery is all dark greens. The wind is blowing as leaves swirl around the grave. This is a great cover, typically Spider-Man, and him mourning the death of somebody he failed to save will be a continuing motif over the years. The structure to this issue is the most interesting part. Neil Gaiman once said that a story must have a beginning, a middle and an end, but not necessarily in that order. Kurt Busiek opens this issue in a darkened alleyway, with a Spider-Man who looks little worse for war. Rubble is strewn everywhere, and Spider-Man is talking to an unseen person about how his friend died today. We flash back to Spider-Man and Sally Avril, aka Bluebird, fighting the good fight, although as usual, Bluebird takes too many chances. Spider-Man deliberately lets her take a quite brutal punch to the gut to demonstrate that he won't always be around to save her. It's a calculated risk, but one that seems to pay off. Winded and bruised, Sally decides to call this superhero lark a day. This is quite a brutal scene, completely devoid of blood or gore. Olaf does a great job of showing just how much power was in the punch Sally took, using a wide panel and keeping his focus on Sally's face. The force of the blow knocks her off her feet. Her face is shocked and surprised and her lip is bloody. She spends a good long while recovering from this blow, giving Spider-Man a chance to emphasise his point that what he does isn't for fun. Peter seems to have scored a victory here. Next day at school, Sally is all smiles. She says she has a new idea, but Peter doesn't pay much attention. He's far more focused on the arrival in New York of Emil Stragovsk of Xavier, which will provide some photo opportunities and some much-needed cash. However, Stragovs is hit by the Black Knight, is there any other kind of knight, who is auditioning to be a leader of Baron Zemo's Masters of Evil. Whilst tackling the knight, Spidey spots Sally. Her new plan includes having Jason drive her around everywhere, looking for photo opportunities as she plans to steal Peter's thunder. But in her zeal, she orders Jason to run a red light, resulting in them being hit by a bus. Jason survives with minor injuries, but Sally is killed. 
The rest of the issue takes a back seat to this development. Spidey takes down the Black Knight in a really quite entertaining fight scene where he openly mocks the knight and his gadgets, but the focus is really on how Spider-Man is a very formidable foe when riled. He almost kills the Black Knight until the Human Torch stops him, and it is he that Spider-Man is telling this story to. This is quite possibly the best issue of Untold Tales yet. Sally's death is a tragic accident brought on by her own impetuousness, but it's Jason who'll be left alive to pick the pieces up of this in later issues. Much is made of the fact that he survived with only a mild concussion and was driving without a licence. Peter, of course, blames himself for this, even though, as the Human Torch points out, this is in no way his fault. In the annals of Spider-Man death, this is definitely one Peter isn't even indirectly responsible for. The Torch tells Spidey that he stopped Sally from doing something stupid. He couldn't have known she'd go out and do something even stupider. Despite this, Busiek has done a good job developing Sally, and she became an interesting and charming member of the cast. She had elements of Murray Jane, but without a filter, or inkling that she was going too far. This also has interesting ramifications for the future of this book. Of the three new characters Busiek introduced, Tiny has dropped out of school, Sally is dead, and Jason will have to live with what he's done, and that's probably the most interesting character study. Unlike Peter, one can argue that as the driver, Jason was responsible for Sally's death, as he deliberately ran a red light, and it'll be interesting to see how Flash and Co. react to Jason upon his return. Sally hasn't been forgotten. She recently turned up as one of Peter's dead friends in the Clone Conspiracy miniseries. It was little more than a one-panel cameo, but it was nice to see her, though. And that's where we'll end for this episode. Coming up next in our Untold Tales retrospective, we have the return of Dr. Octopus, the first annual Spider-Man clashing with Hawkeye, and the first appearance of Mary Jane Watson. But that's next time. We'll just stop now for a brief commercial interlude, and then I'll be right back. Andy, I have an amazing idea. Let's do a podcast. We've been talking about doing this for years. That sounds great. So, what should we talk about? Something no one else is talking about. Batman. <sighs> Mike, there are hundreds of Batman shows out there. You used to do one. True. Well, maybe we could do an index show. Are you insane? We both already host those. True again. Okay, maybe we could talk about Batman stories no one else does. Like the Jerry Conway run. Ooh, ooh, yeah. Yeah, we could discuss his entire run and then go into the Doug Mensch run. But we won't be tied down to that. We need to be free to talk about other Batman stories from that era as well. And we could call it The Overlooked Dark Knight, the non-index index show. Great! Uh, I guess we should do a trailer. I think we kind of just did. Yeah, but it's missing something. Like, you should have added music behind us or something. Andy, I have an amazing idea. Let's do a podcast. We've been talking about doing this for years. That sounds great! So, what should we talk about? Something no one else is talking about. Batman. (sighs) Mike... There are hundreds of Batman shows out there. You used to do one. True. Well, maybe we could do an index show. Are you insane? We both already host those. True again. Okay, maybe we could talk about Batman stories no one else does. Like the Jerry Conway run. Ooh, yeah. Yeah, we could discuss his entire run and then go into the Doug Mensch run. But we won't be tied down to that. 
we need to be free to talk about other Batman stories from that era as well. And we could call it The Overlooked Dark Knight, the non-index index show. Great! The Overlooked Dark Knight, the non-index index show. New episodes drop on the 14th and 28th of every month. The show and the website, www.overlookeddarknight.com, launch in May of 2017 from the Fortress of Bailitude Podcasting Network. That's a great show that I just played a trailer for. Implying that I knew what trailer's going in though when I record this. Uh, let's look at some emails. The first one tonight is from Jason Trenner. Hi, Jason. Uh, greetings, Andrew. I'd never heard of Callan before you mentioned it, and that movie sounded interesting. A very beer and cigarettes take on the spy game and gritty and dirty. The Equalizer pilot was also interesting. As to what I think of the length of episodes and such, just do whatever comes to you. I enjoy the show regardless. Well, thank you, Jason. That seemed to be the general consensus. Regarding uh, the question that I asked there. Uh, Patrick Delmore has almost emailed in with Spidey Spectacular Special Series. Hi Andy. Hi Patrick. I was so happy to see your first episode about untold tales of Spider-Man turn up in my podcast feed. I'm a huge fan of this series. My dad handed me the first issue shortly before I started the seventh grade. And it was one of three comics I even had a mail order subscription to. The others being DuckTales and Bone. I read every issue until the covers fell off and then tacked the covers to the wall of my room. The only issue I could never find was number seven, which I didn't read until I got the trade. I lost the entire series in ninth grade when I loaned the Falling Apart issues, plus the Amazing Fantasy run, plus the flashback annual of Spectacular Spider-Man, which you covered on Hey Kids, plus the Deadpool issue where he goes back in time and assumes Peter's identity, all in a plastic bag to a friend who quickly lost them. I'm just going to interrupt the email there, so I presume he's not your friend anymore. Uh, I didn't get the trade until years later, but got it signed by Busiek in time for him to tell me Untold Tales would return in the summer of 2010. Too bad that wasn't a very good story. Not sure what that one I'm telling is either. Wrapping it up, all is right with the world now that you have the Untold Tales omnibus on my lap as I type this. I look forward to following along as you continue to tell us your impressions of the series. Patrick. Uh, oh, good. Well, thank you for that, Patrick. I don't have the omnibus. I have the issues. And I think at this point I should point out that there is an issue of this I don't have. It's an Untold Tales of Spider-Man special team up with Doctor Strange that I wasn't even aware of until Scott McElroy mentioned it on Twitter. He was doing one of his drunk Pete things. And uh, he, he posted the cover to that around the time that the Doctor Strange movie came out. And I was like, I, I didn't even know this was, was here. And it's not on Comixology. So I am trying to get hold of a paper copy to be able to include it in these this series of retrospectives. But uh, if anyone happens upon a copy, uh, let me know. And uh, let me know how much it is and I may ask you to buy it for me. P.S. Uh, oh, Patrick has a P.S. I really like it when Palace episodes are released on a weekend, especially on a Sunday. Sure, it's fun to turn on my phone after lunch at work and see something to get me through an hour. But what I really love to do is watch the TV show or read the comics you're going to talk about and immediately slip into your narrative about them. Sundays just seem right for that. All the best. Patrick. Well, you're very welcome, Patrick. Uh, Palace gets released when it gets released. I try and stick with weekends because it doesn't seem like Two True Freaks has a lot of stuff that gets released on a Sunday. Back to the Bins comes out on Saturday. Um, so I don't want to I don't want to clash with Bins. So Sunday seems to be a really decent day to release this one because I I don't recall off the top of my head if is Dave's is Dave's Dave's podcast does that get released on Sundays? 
you don't really want to clash with other people, but Palace doesn't even really have a regular release date, so there's not really a lot I can do about it. I mean, Hey Kids traditionally comes out on a Thursday, and I tend to stick to Thursdays. But um, I'll, I'll, I'll see what other people say, and I, I may stick to weekend releases for this, if that is what the consensus is. Chris Franklin's emailed in uh, with Untold Delights. Chris is currently hosting, along with Supermate, which he does with his lovely wife, Cindy, he is currently hosting Batman Nightcast with Ryan Daly, which is, as I record this, just starting to cover Batman Year One by Frank Miller and David Mastielli. And it's a brilliant show. I absolutely love it. Um, I've never grown out of my Batman face, which I understand some people do. Some strange and unusual people grow out of their Batman face, but I haven't. Um, and if you haven't either, then that's an absolutely brilliant show to listen to. Ryan and, and Chris are really informative and fun, and uh, their enthusiasm for this run, particularly the Mike W. Bar Alan Davis comics, is infectious, which is what I look for in a podcast. So go and check out that if you haven't already done so. It's part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Hello Andy, hello Chris. I greatly enjoyed your first round of coverage of Untold Tales of Spider-Man. The book was exactly as you described, a haven from all of the mind-numbing, continuity-obliterating antics of the never-ending clone saga. I dropped out of Amazing Spider-Man after years of regular readership during the Peter's Parents of Back storyline, so I missed all that drama, but there was no way I was going back in with all those clones around. So Untold Tales gave me a nice little Spidey fix and got me right in the field since I so loved my old 80s Marvel Tales, which reprinted the early Amazing Spider-Man. I stuck with it for a while, but for some reason dropped off at some point in the run. I'm not sure why. Maybe I was just buying too many DC books. Maybe because this was during my comic shop clerk days and just read them in the store. Not very good for sales, I know. Either way, I look forward to you continuing on with this series as I think it's a solid run that has unfortunately been forgotten for the most part and it deserves the Spider Signal spotlight. I can't wait till you get to the annual or untold tales of Spider-Man 96. That's a hoot, Chris. Well, the annual will be in the next episode, Chris. And I am also looking forward to it because um, I've already got the issues out to start reading and, and making some notes for doing these. And I had completely forgotten that the art in this is by Mike Allred. So um, that, that's, uh, that's looking quite interesting with Joe Sinnott Inks. So that promises to be... Uh, that's Untold Tales of Spider-Man 96. So that's not the first annual then, is it? Is the first annual... I'm confused. I don't know whether the first annual is Untold Tales of Spider-Man 96, but I'm, I'm sure I'll figure it out at some point. Thanks for emailing in, Christopher. It's very much appreciated. Our next email is from uh, um, Seamus T. Highland. Um, or Shay Highland, as he is at the end of the email. Uh, it says, Untold Tales of Spider-Man. It says, Andy, I really should make more of an effort to email about your various shows. So here we go. I just finished listening to your podcast on the first six issues of Untold Tales of Spider-Man. So naturally, I'm going to go in reverse order and start discussing the email section of your show. First off, any band called Fat Man Jabba would obviously be a reggae band and would be fronted by Shabba Ranks, who would shout Jabba at every opportunity between verse and chorus. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> Jabba. Secondly, I really enjoyed your family Star Wars episode. I wouldn't call myself a Star Wars fan. I've seen Star Wars Empire and Jedi and The Force Awakens and I enjoyed them, but that was it. However, I remember fondly how excited all of my school friends were about Star Wars and the Kenner toy range when they were released. And so listening to your family enjoying the movie brought back all of the schoolyard conversations and speculation about Star Wars and what would happen next. 
If you were ever to do a music episode, there are plenty of undiscovered gems, like XTC's Sergeant Rock is going to help me, which completely missed the point of Sergeant Rock, and Paul McCartney's Magneto and Titanium Man, which I think is fair to say was not what I expected. I'm a Beatles fan and don't want to say that it's rubbish. And, um... Shay has provided me a link to both those songs, so I'll listen to them uh, when I finish recording. Now, on to Untold Tales. I loved it when this came out. I was only getting amazing and spectacular at the time, so I was not getting a complete story. The phrase to be continued in, insert random issue here, became the bane of my existence. So having a single narrative title that I was just looking forward to was just what I needed. To me, it was close enough to the feel of the original Lee Ditko run to be really enjoyable. I like DeFalco's style of writing, even though every character he writes talks in the same fashion. In my head, this series bleeds into Spider-Girl, and as I love that as well, I guess I can look the other way. That's a thought for After Untold Tales. Do you want me to go back and carry on with Amazing from where I left off with issue 39? Or should I do some Spider-Girl? See, the Spider-Girl thing would be a, a much bigger project, wouldn't it? Because what was the 125 issues of Spider-Girl? So I think I think that may be a harder project, but um, yeah, certainly worth thinking about, I think. The villains in Untold Tales, continues Shea, may not have been the most original, but you ended up caring about them, especially Batwing. I like the way their sleazeball politician was Randolph Cherry, who would show up in Daredevil during Miller's run as Kingpin's puppet. I think the great strength of the series was that you became so invested in the supporting characters. Well, you know, Spidey isn't going to die anytime soon. All bets are off when it comes to the supporting characters. So if you're engaged with the characters, the element of danger and tension is increased. I always thought Spider-Man and Superman had the best supporting casts. I started following Superman in the early 80s, and while I loved the superhero stuff, 30-year-old spoiler warning, I cared about Lana and Clark's relationship. Lois recovering from breaking up with Superman, Jimmy trying to make a name for himself, and Perry and Alice's marriage problems. Nobody ever cared about Steve Lombard. Untold Tales had the same strength. I was interested in the new characters, Tiny, Jason and Sally. Jason was particularly loathsome, but Tiny raised some interesting issues about the cycle of abuse. And as for Sally, well, more on her later in the series. Oh, and as for the nurse, surely the fact Peter was a quiet, studious boy should have made the bruises more suspicious. You would expect a high school football player to be banged up, but an honour student who doesn't engage in any school sports activity? The only thing I can think of was it was a Friday, and the nurse didn't want to be tied down with paperwork. Anyway, I really enjoyed the episode, and I look forward to you covering the rest of the series. All the best, Shay Highland. Well, thank you very much, Shay. It was very much appreciated. I particularly liked uh, Shabba, rank, the Shabba Ranks thing. Jabba! That, that, was, that tickled me. That tickled my ivories, I have to say. All right, that's it. That's the email bag emptied out for this time. As usual, this is the obligatory part of the show where I mentioned that the 2TrueFreaks.com webpage has an Amazon link that you can click on. And when you buy stuff from Amazon, we get a kickback. It does not cost you anything extra and it allows us to continue to produce content like this. So if you'd like any of the 2 True Freak shows, and why would you not... Uh, go through that link and it helps us keep the lights on and it's very much appreciated thank you for everybody who emailed in this time it was nice to hear from you as it always is uh, and unusually I've thrown out two of these Spider-Man ones in a row so I may just carry on doing this because I really am enjoying looking at untold tales of Spider-Man okay so that may be next it may not it's the palace who can say see you next time thank you for joining me goodbye goodbye